0: Peace to all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. I greet all those who have come to study the Catechism more closely. This is the first of my recordings with basic commentary on the Catechism. Well, I will cover the paragraphs from week one, paragraphs one through 50, and also uh, week two, paragraphs 51 through 108. It is my hope to put these recordings out every Saturday on the week before the next or excuse me every Sunday on the week but when the new the new one begins to give you some commentary and again my goal in this podcast this recording it's not so much explain the catechism but give context and definition of terms so let's begin in the name of the father and the son of the holy spirit amen Come, Holy Spirit, for the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your divine love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit have taught the hearts of your faithful, granted in that same Spirit, we might be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation. Through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I wish to begin by reading the first sentence of paragraph 1 from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. God, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself, in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man to make him share in his own blessed life. That's a beautiful beginning and the goal of all revelation that God, who is, was, and is to come, who is perfect being, his own self, Love within his own self wanted love to be shared and invites all to share in his own blessed life. In paragraph 2 it starts, "...that this call should resound throughout the world, Christ sent forth the apostles he had chosen, commissioning them to proclaim the gospel, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit." teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And so that's what the Catechism is, that teaching. Paragraph 3, this treasure received from the Apostles has been faithfully guarded by their successors. All Christ's faithful are called to hand it on from generation to generation by professing the faith, living it in fraternal sharing, and celebrating it in the liturgy and prayer. That's That's what the church does. Paragraph 4 gives a a simple definition of catechesis, and that's one important term I want to define. Catechesis, it says, quote on paragraph 4, quote, The name catechesis was given to the totality of the church's efforts to make disciples, to help men believe that Jesus is the Son of God, so that believing they might have life in his name, and to educate and instruct them in this life, thus building up the body of Christ. So catechesis is the totality of the church's efforts to make disciples. It's fundamentally education. Catechesis is education in making people disciples. And so that catechism is a collection of teachings. That's something to remember, not simply that we have mere intellectual knowledge, but that we are equipped to help men and women believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and so that by believing, they might have life in his name, and then educated instruction in the Christian life. That's, that's what the catechism is. So as we go through this, to remind that these are a collection of Teachings that have been organized over the history of the church. Paragraphs 9 and 10 give a sort of history of how this catechism came to be and catechisms that came before it, uh, collections of teachings. And so we have this catechism, which is structured in four parts. Part 1, the profession of faith, described in paragraph 14. Part 2, the sacraments of faith, described in paragraph 15. Part 3, the life of faith, described in paragraph 16. And Part 4, the life of faith, described in paragraph 17. This is what in the coming year we hope to walk through. I wish to quote to you the first sentence of paragraph 18. This catechism is conceived as an organic presentation of the Catholic faith in its entirety. So that's the goal of this catechism. Now you'll see as we walk through it, it doesn't describe every single part of Christian life. It's not going to tell you what an Advent wreath is, for example. But it is trying an organic presentation of the Catholic faith. A lot of practices in the Catholic faith are not described here, but the faith as such is. And so we continue to move forward. Again, I'm not going to uh, read every single paragraph that's for you to do. I'm not going to explicate necessarily the meaning of every single paragraph, but just simply give highlights, context, and definition of terms. If we move to paragraph 26, you see we are in part one, the profession of faith. So the first of those four parts. It is structured according to the structure of the creed. So that's why you see it says, section one, I believe dash we believe. And really... This catechism came out before the reform of the liturgical texts. Some of you might remember some years ago, we would stand and say the creed and begin, we believe in one God. Which was an interesting sort of thing, because the original Latin text says, credo in unum deum. The word credo is very clearly first person singular. Credo, which means I believe. We all know that we believe is plural, not singular. And so it's right that we say I believe. In the middle of paragraph six, it says, quote, Faith is man's response to God who reveals himself and gives himself to man at the same time bringing man a superabundant light as he searches for that ultimate meaning of his life. So faith is man's response to God. Please note that much later in the Catechism, it will give a formal definition to the word faith. But for our context, that's a good way to begin. Faith as our response to God. There is a beautiful quotation in paragraph 2 from the Second Vatican Council document, Gaudium et Spes, where it says, quote, The dignity of man rests above all on the fact that he is called to communion with God. Now you see the Catechism is setting up the response part first, I believe, since that is how we begin the Creed. The Catechism will go on to say and give evidence that man is a religious being to say that everyone has a search for God, which is affected by sin and error. And so the freedom that man has in his search for God and the innate desire for God gives rise to great beauty, but can also give rise to difficulties. Paragraph 29 describes that well. Paragraph 30 describes it in a more percible way, saying, quote, Although man can forget or reject God, he never ceases to call every man to seek him so as to find life and happiness. But this search for God demands of every man an effort of intellect, a sound will, an upright heart, as well as the witness of others who teach him to seek God. That is the Ultimate search for God, yes. Effort of intellect, will, upright heart, and the witness of others, of which this catechism is a part. Beginning on paragraph 31, the catechism asserts that there are proofs for the existence of God. That's something the church has always understood. Now, the catechism does not give per se proofs for the existence of God. Because the Catechism is fundamentally a work for believers. Now, there are many proofs for the existence of God, and you'll notice in the Catechism, it has um, paragraph. Excuse me, footnote number 10, and it references the Summa Theologica of St. Thomas Aquinas, where he gives his famous proofs for the existence of God. Fundamentally understanding, and this is paragraph 34, quote, The world and man attest that they contain within themselves neither their first principle nor their final end, but rather that they participate in being itself, which alone is without origin or end. So remember, being itself is without origin or end. I know that I have a beginning, and I will have an ending. I do not cause myself to be. I am not my own final end. And this is the way we reach out to being itself, who we call God. We move on then, for to the knowledge of God according to the church. And again, that's fundamentally important. The catechism is the knowledge of God that the church has. It gives reference to the proofs for God's existence, but does not go into a systematic explanation of them as such, because that has been done in other places. Paragraph 36. Our Holy Mother the Church holds and teaches that God, the first principle And last end of all things can be known with certainty from the created world by the natural light of human reason. That's exactly something the church has always taught. St. Paul talks about this in his letter to the Romans. However, the catechism will go on to explain in paragraph 37 and also 36 that this capacity is real in humanity, but is also prone to error. Our senses are limited. Our imaginations can run wild. Our appetites can take control of ourselves. Sin can blind us. And so, we have the need for revelation or enlightenment from God. Then we get to number four, beginning with paragraph 39. How can we speak about God? Paragraph 40 makes a very important point. Quote, since our knowledge of God is limited, our language about him is equally so. We can name God only by taking creatures as our starting point, and in accordance with our limited human ways of knowing and thinking. So that's a good... The church says what it knows, not what it doesn't know. The church understands that there are limits to this thing. And so again, I'm going to repeat this a lot. The church says what it knows... It doesn't say what it doesn't know. And so the catechism is not a preponderance or theory maker. It states what it knows. Paragraph 42, quote, God transcends all creatures. We must, therefore, continually purify our language of everything in it that is limited, image-bound, or imperfect if we are not to confuse our image of God the inexpressible, the incomprehensible, the invisible, the ungraspable with our human representations. Our human words always fall short of the mystery of God. So again, we continually purify our language. This will point later, and they'll talk about this in the section on prayer, about the need for the interior life. That catechesis or theology as such is not, merely an academic discipline. It is academic. It does use intellect and will. It does use the faculty of reason. But it also stands in need of purification. Paragraph 43. Likewise, we must recall that between creator and creature, no similitude can be expressed without implying an even greater dissimilitude. Please note that similitude means sameness or likeness or similarity, right? That's what we get that word similarity from similitude. And so when we move forward, <clears throat> and we'll begin on paragraph 50, chapter 2, God comes to meet man. There's man's search for God, and then there's God coming to reveal himself to man. And that is what, in paragraph 50, it calls, quote, the order of divine revelation. Quote, through an utterly free decision, God has revealed himself and given himself to man. So that is the confession. That is the credo, God's revelation to man. We will come to proofs for that revelation within the Catechism, but that is the first confession, That God who dwells in unapproachable light wants to communicate his own divine life to men he freely created in order to adopt them as his son in the only begotten son. That's a quotation from paragraph 52. This love for God is not merely uh, intellectual or didactic or ethereal, but is what God wants to do in our lives, to share our love by the revelation of his son. Then we move on to the stages of Revelation. I hope you find this a clear history. Paragraph 54, God makes himself known in the beginning to our first parents. And then there is the fall of sin. Starting on paragraph 56, 7, and 8, the covenant with Noah. That very uh, elemental covenant. As it says in paragraph 56, gives expression to the principle of the divine economy towards the nations. In other words, towards men grouped in their lands, each with their own language, by their families and their nations. Paragraph 57 is a very fascinating paragraph. This state of division into many nations is at once cosmic, social, and religious. It is intended to limit the pride of fallen humanity, united with... Only in its perverse ambition to forge its own unity at Babel. Again, that's a very intense and powerful statement by the catechism. The state of division to many nations is cosmic, social, and religious, and temed to limit the pride of fallen humanity. We overcome our pride and yet find unity in the person of Jesus. We cannot create our own unity. And so the covenant with Noah calls out to all the nations. Then beginning on paragraph 59 through 61 is the revelation to Abraham and his calling of that particular group of people. Then beginning on page 62, God forms his covenant with his people Israel. Ending on page 64, speaking how God calls the nation of israel through moses and the law given on sinai to make this as it says in the scriptures a people particularly my own to reveal my holiness to the nations Un- unquote that's what god says that, Mos- that that israelite covenant is to have a particular people whose duty is to reveal god's holiness To the nations. Then we come to the conclusion, section 3 Jesus Christ, mediator and fullness of all revelation, God has said everything in his word. Quote from paragraph 65 In him, meaning Jesus, he, meaning God, has said everything. There will be no other word than this one. Moving paragraph 66. Quote, The Christian economy, therefore, since it is the new and definitive covenant, will never pass away, and no new public revelation is to be expected before the glorious manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet even if revelation is already complete, it has not been made completely explicit. It remains for Christian faith to gradually to grasp its full significance over the course of of the centuries, and this is obedience to the word of Christ Jesus. You know, if another says, "comes says, I am here," there he is. Don't listen to them; right? that he has spoken the definitive word. Paragraph sixty-seven gives an excellent definition of what we call private revelation. These are things like Marian apparitions, locutions to saints or other holy people. That describes what that is and how to understand it. So we move on to the transmission of divine revelation. Knowing that God desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, we know there is the apostolic tradition that Christ commanded the apostles to preach the gospel. And we know, and the Catechism declares in paragraph 76, that the apostolic preaching in keeping with the Lord's command, hands on the gospel in two ways, orally by the apostles who spoke it, and in writing by those apostles and other men associated with the apostles who, under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit, committed the message of salvation to writing. We know clearly that St. Peter, for example, preached the sermon at Pentecost before it was written down in the Acts of the Apostles. I hope that's obvious to everyone. That the apostles are out preaching the gospel before anything is written down. That the apostles leave the bishops as their own successors and give them their own position of teaching authority. Now, please note in the catechism, that's catechism paragraph number 77, And notice the footnote, number 35, references the writing against the heresies, adversus heresis, by St. Irenaeus, where he gives a profound explanation of the authority of the bishops. That letter of St. Irenaeus has been the cause of conversions of many, many Protestants to divine and Catholic faith. Now, paragraph 76 gives an important definition when it says, quote, This living transmission, accomplished in the Holy Spirit, is called Tradition, since it is distinct from Sacred Scripture, though closely connected to it. Through Tradition, the Church in her doctrine, life, and worship perpetuates and transmits to every generation all that she herself is, all that she believes. That is the definition of Tradition, and we will see the importance of that. Moving forward, we get to number two, the relationship between tradition and sacred scripture. Paragraph 81. Now it goes and talks about the one common source, who is God and the gospel of Christ, and the two distinct modes of transmission. Paragraph 81, quote, sacred scripture is the speech of God as it is put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit, right? The Bible, the scriptures. Next, and holy tradition transmits in its entirety the word of God which has been entrusted to the apostles by the Lord and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, Jesus Christ says to his apostles, I have much more to say to you but you cannot bear it now. He says when the Holy Spirit comes he will remind you of all that I told you and lead you into all truth. The Holy Spirit will lead the apostles into all truth. Not every believer Jesus does not say the Holy Spirit will come to every believer. No, the Holy Spirit will come to the apostles and remind them of all he said and lead them to all truth. In the Gospel of St. John it says explicitly not everything Jesus said and did is written down in this book. So that's what tradition is. Now of course... The Catechism makes reference to history, that the first generations of Christians did not yet have a written New Testament, and the New Testament itself demonstrates the process of living tradition. Precisely so. Now, it doesn't give an explanation of that as such. It just states what is a clear fact. The Church came before the Bible. Really, any kind of um, apologetic with a non-Catholic, or with a Protestant anyways, has to begin with that fact that they must be able to admit, on the simple, historical, factual level, evidential level, that the Church existed before the Bible, that in no way denigrates the Word of God, rather exalts it, but is something that is clear. And so as we move forward, we come to two definitions that are important. The first in paragraph 84 It says, the Apostles entrusted the sacred deposit of the faith, the depositum fidei, contained in sacred scripture and tradition to the whole church. So the deposit of faith is sacred scripture and tradition. Sacred scripture and tradition equals the deposit of faith. The faith that was given to us by Christ and the Holy Spirit preached by the Apostles. Then we get, starting on paragraph 85, this interesting word, magisterium. Right? Magisterium. Now paragraph 85 says, The task of giving an authentic interpretation of the Word of God, whether in its written form or in the form of tradition, has been entrusted to the living teaching off of the office of the church alone so that the living teaching office of the church that's what the magisterium is magisterium from that word magister magister means teacher so the magisterium is the teaching and properly speaking the living teaching office of the church Catechism reminds us the magisterium is not superior to the word of God, but is its servants. It teaches only what has been handed on to it. And so the magisterium enlightens faith. That moves us forward into the section on dogma. Dogma are those proclamations that the church proposes obliging all Christians to believe. right? To be a Christian, you must believe the dogmas of the faith. Paragraph 89 says it most beautifully. Quote, Dogmas are lights along the path of faith. They illuminate it and make it secure. Exactly right. Dogma, things you must believe, are lights along the path. The path leads up a beautiful mountain through the most verdant forest and where different people can encounter all sorts of amazing things. But it must be the path. If not, you fall off the path. You fall off the cliff. For some people, I make the analogy, which has been made before, it's like the canvas and the paint. You have to stay on the canvas. You have to paint with oils. You might say, but I want to paint off the canvas then you don't have a painting. Well, then I I want to paint with crayons. Well, fine, then you have crayons. You don't have a painting. Does the fact that there's a canvas restrict your freedom? That's insane. When they measure out the lines of a basketball court and the height of the hoop and the size of the hoop, is that restricting the freedom of the basketball players to play basketball? Well, that's ridiculous. When we say there is such a thing as no double dribbling or no traveling, does that impede the player? Does that restrict him and make him small? No. It's the light that makes his game beautiful for all to see. That's dogma. Mm -hmm. Moving on to the supernatural sense of faith we have this understanding that the people receive the magisterium, that the faithful, the whole body of the faithful, again, whole body, individual believers can make all kinds of mistakes, but the whole body of the faithful receive the magisterium. So it concludes on paragraph 95 with the quotation, It is clear that in the supremely wise arrangement of God, sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the magisterium of the church are so connected and associated that one of them cannot stand without the other. Working together each in its own way under the action of the Holy Spirit, they all contribute effectively to the salvation of souls. Scripture and tradition taught by the magisterium revealing the lights of dogma effectively help the salvation of souls and give rise to the freedom of the children of God. Freedom and anarchy are not the same thing. Scripture, tradition, magisterium, and dogma separate freedom from anarchy and chaos. We conclude moving forward to Article 3, Sacred Scripture, because now it's going to give an explication of the first of those two fonts of divine revelation. Remember, divine revelation has two, source, has two uh, expressions, sacred scripture and tradition, coming from the one source of the gospel of Christ. And the first expression of that is sacred scripture. There is this beautiful quotation from St. Augustine on paragraph 102, quote, You recall that one and the same Word of God extends throughout Scripture, that it is one and the same utterance that resounds in the mouths of all the sacred writers, since he who was in the beginning God with God has no need of separate syllables, for he is not subject to time. The sacred Scripture is, in paragraph 104, not a human word, but what it really is, the Word of God. Now we move forward to this section on inspiration. And because we conclude on paragraph 108, I encourage you to meditate on inspiration. That in the sacred scripture are divinely revealed realities. That God inspired the human authors of the sacred books. Note, God did not write the Bible. People did, people who, quote, made full use of their own faculties and powers, but that these inspired books teach truth, that we must acknowledge that the books of Scripture firmly, faithfully, and without error teach the truth of God for our salvation, which to see invited to the sacred scriptures. Now again, the truth of God for our salvation— uh, the sacred scriptures do not teach the truth of God about um, the movement of the crust of the earth. Uh, the sacred scriptures do not t- teach you the truth about why two plus two equals four, etc. right? About truth needed for salvation. Father, you're saying someone can go to heaven without knowing that two plus two equals four? Yes, that, that is possible, right? Yes, of course, right? Do you mean someone can go to heaven without knowing anything about plate tectonics and the movements of of the surface of the... Yes. Yes, yes, they can, right? Simple people can go to heaven, right? Knowing more is better. But that's why revelation is what is needed for salvation. All right. This is a long one because we're moving through our two weeks. I'm trying to sum up the week that has just concluded and preface that a week that is coming... I'll try to purify these uh, comments. My hope is to make them about 10 or 15 minutes long, but I wanted to set it up and give some idea of what will happen. Yes, there will be some explanation, but a lot more it's going to try to be definition of terms and explanation of context. I wish you peace as you listen to this and even more peace in your study. In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Let God arise, let his enemies flee before him. Let those who love him seek his holy face. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Holy Mary, our hope, seed of wisdom, pray for us.